going to start with our verse that uh, our young people start every class with, open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Okay, we're going to find our way. Let's start in Joshua, no, yeah, Joshua 1, Joshua 1. That's the first place we'll be. Um, we've been talking about the 10 strategies for first-rate reading. Lord willing, we'll finish up the last four tonight, and maybe if we have time, we'll have a, an exercise to do together. Um, we'll see how quickly I can move through this without doing a disservice to the information. 10 strategies for first-rate reading. We're to read thoughtfully, repeatedly, patiently, selectively, prayerfully, imaginatively, meditatively, purposefully, acquisitively, and telescopically. And Lord willing, we'll be covering meditatively through telescopically tonight as we go to it. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord God, would you please help me to teach this in the way that most pleases you to be a help to your people? And Lord, may it find good ground tonight. And would you just uh, use this to draw us closer to your word, and in doing so, to draw us closer to you. And we're going to thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, let's begin with reading meditatively. Now, I'm going to give you a, you've heard this before, this never fails to convict me. Who you are on the inside is who you are. Who you are on the inside is who you are. And we use Proverbs 23, 7 as a reference for that. It says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. God deliver us from this thought that because we check all the boxes outwardly, that we've pleased him and that all is well. No. We, we do those things for those on the outside for sure, but God looks on the heart. And as I've said a thousand times a thousand in the last nearly 13 years, I love what Adrian Rogers says, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. What we are in our heart is who we are. It's a tough thing to meditate on, isn't it? Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, we begin there. It says this, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, then thou shalt have good success. Would you make your way over to Psalm 1? Psalm 1. Verse 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. These two um, passages have a word in common, and that word is meditate. That word is meditate. What does it mean to meditate? Well, the word comes from the Hebrew word hagah, and it means, this is a partial definition, to mutter, to growl, or to imagine. 
Many times the Hebrews would use this word to describe a cow or a ruminant of any kind chewing its cud. And those of you that are uh, agricultural in nature, you know what's going on. A cow has multiple compartments, and one of them is called a rumen. And they will eat grass, and it will go to that rumen, and then periodically they'll bring it back up, and they'll chew it again. They're getting the most nutrients out of that food source. And that's exactly what it means to meditate on the Scriptures. We're meant to store it and to bring it back up periodically and to get all that we can out of it. Okay? There's, there's another idea that comes with this word that we'll cover in a minute. But let's ask this question. What does it accomplish? What does it co- accomplish when we meditate on the Scriptures? First and foremost, we please God. You remember what Psalm 119.14 said? Let the words of my mouth and the what? The meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Now, if you were to look that word meditation up, you would think it's a different word. It's a different, it's the same root word. It's a different prefix and suffix on it. but it, has, it carries the same meaning, but it, it adds an extra little thought here. The idea of resounding music. What do we take from that? That when we meditate on the Word of God, not only are we pleasing God, but it creates a song in us that then blesses others. Just as kind of a a summary thought about reading meditatively, anything worth doing is worth taking your time to do it well. Would you agree with that? If it's not worth taking your time to do it well, it's not worth doing to begin with. And when we study the Word of God... I'm of the persuasion that it is better to meditate on a shorter passage, maybe even a couple of verses, and to do it well, than to skim over an entire chapter just to say you read it and keep on going. Read meditatively. Then, read purposefully. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me, please. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Boy, we know this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We ask this question, what is the purpose of Bible study? Because if you're doing something and you want to do it well, you've got to have in mind what your ultimate goal is. It will add a certain a certain drive to you. What's the purpose? What's the goal of Bible study? And when we study and when we read, we should do so with that purpose in mind. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now let's, let's look at a few words. First of all, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Profitable means you end up with more than you started with. Okay. Then we see the word doctrine. 
What's doctrine? That's what's right. Lord, teach me. Okay. What's reproof? That's what's wrong. Lord, touch me. Okay. For correction, that's how to get things right. Lord, turn me. And then instruction in righteousness, that's how to keep things right. Lord, train me. Okay. That covers about everything, doesn't it? <laughs> Pretty much. But that's not the purpose. That tells you what it does. But what is the purpose? What is the goal? That the man of God may be perfect. Truly furnished unto all good works. Perfect meaning mature, complete. And so I am studying the word of God with this goal in mind, that I might be truly furnished unto all good works, that I might have everything that I need to be a mature Christian who pleases God. That's the goal. And so when you're reading and when you're studying, do so with these purposes and this purpose in mind. Okay? Now, how do we read purposefully? Number one... Pay attention to grammatical structure. Now, what do we mean by that? When you're reading, take note of the subject, the objects, the main verb, the modifiers, the prepositions. Grammar will go a long way to help you rightly divide the word of truth. The easiest example I know to pull on this is, is the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. Grammatically, we, we find out really quick, he is not the focus of that. A certain man had two sons. Who does God present as the subject of, the, of that story? The Father. And we've touched on that before. This is just a reminder. Okay? Pay attention to the grammatical structure of what you're reading. And the kids, they moan and they, oh, please, is it not enough that we have other English classes that you have to bring it into ours too? And I said, yes, I'm bringing it into yours too because I'm a despot and I want you to suffer. No. Um, but there is so much wrong, faulty doctrine, false doctrine, wrong understandings that are fixed if we just pay attention to the grammatical structure that's presented to us. And then the literary structure, and they groan even more with this. Except I do have a couple, I do have a couple of English and literature nerds in my Bible class, and they're they're like me, and so I of course treat them better and give them extra points and things like that literary structure just a few things to um you know like q a if there's a q a going on take note of that can anybody think of right yeah i'm gonna put you on the spot can anybody think of a q a situation in god's word jesus and nicodemus right on the money that's a good one okay we would also call this a dialogue okay um whereas a monologue would almost always be a sermon for instance, the Sermon on the Mount was a monologue. It was a sermon. Okay. How about this? How about cause and effect? We're going we're gonna to look to a passage tonight if we get there in time. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's a cause and effect. The one that jumps out at me is 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven forgive their sin, and heal their land. That's a cause and effect. The Bible's full of those, by the way. Okay? Then you've got uh, stuff like uh, climax and resolution. It builds up to this big crescendo of activity, and then boom, it all resolves. I any great literature has that. Okay? Um, repetition. 
If Jesus says something several times over, should we pay attention? When he's really trying to get back to him and Nicodemus, verily, verily, what's he doing? Pay attention. What I'm about to say is true. You better listen to it, okay? Um, intensives. When, when you see things, sometimes it's repeated or sometimes it's in the original languages, but it is very intensive. It is meant to drive home a point. These are literary structures. If you, if you have this book, uh, pages 125 and 126 are helpful in this, okay? So read purposefully. Number three, read acquisitively. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, reading acquisitively is reading not just to receive, but also to retain. Um, there's been a whole lot that I've read that I didn't retain. It just didn't stick with me. We are, our bent ought to be acquiring biblical property. Now, what do I mean by that? If I say that, that I, I have acquired a piece of property, but when it's all said and done, I don't keep it, did I really acquire it to begin with? No, it wasn't, it wasn't mine. I didn't keep it. Okay? Sometimes we can read the scriptures and we rent them for a while. We lease them for a while, but it doesn't stay. Acquiring, reading acquisitive means I mean for this to stick. I mean for this to stay with me. So how do we do that? There's an anonymous proverb. I don't have any idea who said it, hence the term anonymous. I hear and I forget. I see and I remember and I do and I understand. So what do we take from that when it comes to Bible study? Regarding our retaining, and they've done a whole bunch of studies that, that, that bear this out. We retain 10% of what we hear. And that's something that, that kind of hits home with me. The kids in my Bible class, I can almost tell you how they're going to do on a test or an exam or even a quiz based on how much they're listening. But then 50% of what we hear and see so if I've got a kid that's eh, kind of listening, kind of not, but then they never open their book, they never open their Bible, guess what? I know they're going to do even more poorly. But who are the ones that really do well in any given educational situation? The ones who hear, see, and do. 90% retention rate with those who hear, see, and do. So... How would we apply that? Let me just give you a good practice activity. Sometime when you, when you have some spare time, and we all have plenty, right? But sometime when you have some spare time, maybe let's, you can pick any passage to do this, but, but we chose in our class, we chose 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23. Okay? And here's what I said. I want you to read it. And so they took some time and they read it. I said, all right, now let's read it again aloud. Because what are we doing then? We're seeing and we're hearing. Okay, and now after you do that, I want you to write a summary. Just a couple sentences. Give a summary of what you just read. I bet you any one of them who did the assignment with any fervor at all, if I went back to them and say, hey, you remember that passage we did, that exercise? What was it basically about? I bet you they could tell me. Why? 90% retention rate. 
I'm a big believer in having a pen and paper close by every time I open God's Word. Read acquisitively. And then finally, read telescopically. Read telescopically. Now, what is, what is reading telescopically? What does reading telescopically mean? It means viewing the parts in light of the whole. When you're at one of those vistas, we went to Niagara Falls, and they have all those telescopes that you can put the quarter in and look through and see close up different things, that kind of thing. That's great, but I am much more moved by the view as a whole. It's great to look in and see specific things, but don't forget to take in the whole thing. What's the old saying? You can't see the forest for the trees. And so while we are very much interested in digging into individual portions of Scripture, don't forget to take a step back and look at things as a whole. Otherwise, you get that biblical tunnel vision. It's not helpful. Read your passage. Study your passage. But keep in mind that it is part of a greater whole. It always bothers me when people try to just completely disregard the Old Testament. You can't fully appreciate the New Testament without the Old Testament. Um, let's, let's, give, let's give some thoughts here. First of all, if we're going to read telescopically, first of all, look for the correctives. Now, what is, I'm sorry, not correctives, connectives. That should be connectives. Connectives. What are connectives? And, but, then, words like that. Things that join two thoughts. Look for those. Number two, always pay attention to context, and we'll get into that more as we continue studying, but that's a good thing to remember for the future. Pay attention to context. Now, the two things that I want to spend a little bit of time on, first of all, go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I'm going to give you a little bit more than I gave the class in school, because what I'm going to give you, at least at that point in our study, I did not feel like they were ready for this discussion, nor did I have the time to really get into it, especially when you've got a couple of students that like to you know, keep asking questions and keep digging and all that. We just, I, can't, I can't open this can of worms and then you go on to your next class. You know, we, we need to come back at this when we have time, okay? Number three, Evaluate the, light, the passage in light of the book as a whole or sometimes in light of Scripture as a whole. Sometimes you'll have a passage that it's not enough to look at it in light of that book. You've got to look at it in light of the Bible. And for the, for the example, I'm going to give you James 2, verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Now, when you look at the original, Greek is an interesting language, much more precise than English. And in Greek, when you read this verse, when you read this, this question, within the language is built in something that tells you the expected answer. 
you can tell if the expected answer of this particular rhetorical question is a negative or a positive. So to anybody who knew Greek that was reading this, they would read this and they'd say, what does it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? And then he would immediately know that the author is saying, yes, faith can save him or no, faith cannot save him. Which do you think it is? In the original, the expected answer is no. Well, that's kind of messing with our theology then, isn't it? Wait a minute. I thought we were home free. Can faith save him? Of course faith will save him. Not according to James 2.14. You see why I didn't get into this with the kids? So what do we do? Well, first of all, let's remember the principle that we've been using from the beginning. If you've got one or two verses that seem to say one thing, and you've got the majority of Scripture that says clearly the other, you go with the majority and you figure out the one or two. That's just a basic rule of studying the Bible. Does the whole of Scripture teach salvation by grace through faith or salvation by works. Grace through faith. Far and away, the scriptures teach grace through faith. So anything that seems to say that works are involved in our salvation, there has to be another explanation. But if you read this verse and you walk away from this verse at face value, you walk away thinking that James is saying that works are necessary for salvation. And that is when you desperately need to evaluate that verse in light of the book as a whole and in light of the scripture as a whole. So how do we answer that? Since we're here and since I'm way ahead tonight, how do we answer that? If you look At the book of James in its entirety, James is not saying that works are necessary for salvation. Remember the phrase he uses, look at verse 17, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. What's a faith without works? He doesn't mean you won't go to heaven. He means you're dead and that you're not going to do anybody any good. Because he's just finished talking about if my brother or sister be destitute, A faith without works doesn't help that person, does it? And when you look at the passage as a whole, you realize that what James is saying is, if you can claim to have some faith, but there's nothing in you that wants to do right, that faith is dead. That's not saving faith. Saving faith will result in something. And without those works, there's nothing to show that it's real. Now, for time's sake, we won't get any further into that. We covered the book of James earlier in my ministry here. Feel free to go to YouTube. and um, I'm happy to talk about it again another time. But, but it, you, you see what we're saying here? If you read that one verse and you get tunnel vision on that one verse, it's going to mess your doctrine up. You've got to view it, the whole thing. Get off the telescope and view the whole thing. Okay. Um, so really, I, his choice of that word, I kind of feel like, don't read telescopically. In fact, turn the telescope around, and that way it looks far away. But anyway, maybe that's what he meant. 
Now let's go to Luke 2. Luke 2. We're going to look for the connect, correctives, connectives, connectives. We're going to pay attention to context. We're going to evaluate the passage in light of the book as a whole. And then next we're going to look at the historical context. We glean so much more from the story of Jesus' birth when we look at the historical context. It came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. All of those things can be empirically proven from historical record that all of those things actually happened. And when you start reading through that and you start thinking, okay, he was in Nazareth, he had to go to Bethlehem, that's about a 70-mile trip on a donkey with a very, very, very pregnant Mary. And you start thinking about all that was going on historically around them, it really, really gives you a big picture of what, what's going on. Okay, So, read telescopically. Now, let's, let's do an exercise. You have on your paper here, and I went ahead and put it on the paper because I, I want you to be able to mark it up if you want. You may not be comfortable marking up your Bible in the same way. <clears throat> we did this in class, um, and just, just to kind of give them kind of a, an idea of how to do this. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. Now, before we, before we get into it, remember, the three ingredients to successful Bible study, observation, interpretation, application, the elements of observation, terms, de- define your terms, define, you know, figure out your stru- structure, determine literary form, and the atmosphere. What's the setting of everything that's going on? What are the keys to proper interpretation? Questions, answers, and integration. That's, that's using that information and applying it. Application, what's the implications for me? What's the implications for others? This is the so what of Bible study. We're always keeping in mind the big picture. And when you study the Bible, read, record, and reflect. All of these things are things we need to keep mulling around in our minds as we study the Bible. Whoops. All right, so Acts chapter 16, verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? If you're inclined, circle verse 31. There's a the little 31 right there. This is the verse we most want to spend some time on. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, um, to, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straight way. Okay, so number one. By the way, we did this in class. I was really excited about some of the answers that I got from some of these kids. Who is the, when I say the author, I mean the human writer. Of the, we know God's Holy Spirit authored all of Scripture. Who's the human writer of this passage? Okay. I've heard Luke. Anybody differ from that? 
okay? Paul and Luke, if you say Paul and Luke, that covers just about all the New Testament, so, you know, I get it. All right, uh, the author is Luke. And Luke, this is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Okay, now let's make it a little bit tougher. Who is the author or the writer addressing specifically? Somebody said Theophilus. How do we know that? Starts out that way, doesn't it? Both Luke and Acts are addressed to a guy named Theophilus. What do we know about Theophilus? Well, he's got a Gentile name. He's called most excellent Theophilus, which usually means that term usually is reserved for some kind of Roman official. Yes. Theophilus? T H E O P I. I'm sorry, P H I L U S. Sorry. T H E O P H I L U S. He's, he's some kind of Roman official. Um, his name means lover of God or one who loves God. Theo, Theos, God. And Philus comes from Phileo to love. One who loves God. So that's who. Now, we're being addressed more broadly, but specifically, he's talking to Theophilus. Now, if we were to narrow this passage down, what is the most important term or concept? And I'm going to focus on term. What's the most important term of the passage? If you could pick out one word out of this whole passage as being the central term, what would, what would you choose? Okay. I've heard a number of words, but the one I heard first and loudest was believe. I think you're right. Believe. Now, that's subjective. You may come up with a different word. That's fine. Study it out. But what really, really made me happy was nearly all of my Bible class got that right. I say right. It's not a right or wrong thing, but about all of them said believe. Okay. So let's take some time and let's focus in on that term, believe. The word believe comes from the Greek word pistuo, and it means to trust, to put your confidence in, to entrust. Okay. And we took a lot of time on this one word, probably a third of the class. I'm not going to take that long. But probably a third of the class we took. And I'll tell you why. Because we've got some kids in our class that have been saved a long time. They grew up in Christian homes. We've got some kids in my class that this is fairly new to them. And if there's one thing I want them to understand more than anything else, it's what it means to believe on Jesus. And I told them this story. We don't know how much of this is anecdotal, how much of this actually happened. There's some element of it that's true, and I told them that. I said, I can't tell you that all of this is 100% historically accurate, but the story does, does explain what it means. There's a group, a family that has been doing circus acts for years, 
called the Flying Walendas. And they, they, they do trapeze stuff and all kinds of stuff, but they're, they're most known for tightrope walking. And the story is told, and, and there's variations of it, and so to be the safest, I'm going to just use generalities. If they strung up a, a wire across a very dangerous chasm, it's been said they did that across Niagara Falls, that, that one of the younger ones did it across between the World Trade Centers. I mean, we're talking dangerous stuff. Well, this particular show, you had people on either end. And, you know, and so he walked across, and the people on the other end, as he came, they're just like, wow, that's great. And then he had somebody bring him a wheelbarrow. And he walked that wheelbarrow back across. Wow. He gets to the other side, and the people are so impressed. And he asked this question. He said, how many of you believe I could put somebody in this wheelbarrow and safely walk them across to the other side? And a bunch of them, yeah, I think you probably can. All right, who's it going to be? Predictably, nobody got in. That is exactly what it means to believe on Jesus. And I said this to the kids, and I prefaced it with this just like I'm going to do for you. Don't run me out of here as a heretic until you hear everything I say. How do I know I'm going to heaven? And here's what I said. I don't. And I got some looks. What? I said, I don't. Here's what I do know. November 29, 1979, somebody explained to me the gospel and told me that Jesus was the only way. And my little four-year-old mind believed it. And I got in the wheelbarrow. Now, I haven't made it yet, but I am 100% trusting that the one who's pushing my wheelbarrow will get me to the other side. My religion's not going to do it. My good works isn't going to do it. My denomination isn't going to do it. My vocation isn't going to do it. If Jesus doesn't get me there, I won't make it. All I know to do is sit in the wheelbarrow and let him do all the work. That's what it means to believe. That's it. And yet, well-meaning preachers and youth workers and teachers have so complicated belief as to make it a work on the part of the person rather than something Jesus is fully responsible for. Oh, there's things I should do because I'm saved, but there's not one thing more I can do to be saved. I'm just in the wheelbarrow. You said, well, you said you don't know that you're saved. I know that I've done everything the Bible prescribes to be saved. But at the end of the day, it comes down to faith. It's faith. I believe he said what he says he'll do, he'll do. 
And if he doesn't come through, we're all in trouble. But if he doesn't come through, we would have all been in trouble anyway. But he will. You say, well, Andy, I don't like that approach. Hey, would the man in the Mark chapter 9 say, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I'm at your mercy. You do what only you can do. I said, some of our, and I told these young people, I said, some of you, you think that to be saved, you have to live up to this standard or be this good or, or, or be the, the captain of the Bible quiz team or what? No, no, just get in the wheelbarrow. I don't believe Buddha's is going to get me there. I don't believe Muhammad's is going to get me there. I don't believe I've got one that's going to get me there. I have chosen to get in his wheelbarrow. Is it going to be scary going across? Yep. Are there going to be times it wobbles? Yep. Are there going to be some that are content to watch but not get in? Yep. But at the end of it, I do believe that when I've drawn my last breath, he's enough to get me to the other side. I've, I've banked my whole eternity on it. That's what it means to believe. I have put my confidence in him. I have entrusted everything that I am now and for the future in Jesus. That's what Paul meant. He didn't say get in the wheelbarrow, but that's what he meant. And I'm hoping that those kids that maybe don't know the Lord understand they can't earn it. They've just got to believe. Now, then we look at, we look at uh, ver- number four. What are the main verb tenses? And tensing is so important. Now, we're not going to get into the, 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 the aorist this and the imperfect that and all of that, Okay. But Greek tensing is a lot more specific than, than English as well. If you read the verse, ask and it shall be given unto you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. If you know a little bit about tensing, you know that what he's saying is keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It's a continuous action. Okay, But in Acts chapter 16, when he says believe, you know what the tensing is? One time. It's a simple action to be taken one time with continuing results. So people think, I got to get saved again. I got to get saved again. No. He said, believe one time on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved for now. Thou shalt be saved until you mess it up. Believe and you're saved. I, with all due respect to people that embrace a, a, a belief that you can lose your salvation, I do not understand scripturally how anybody can come to that conclusion. That there's just too much evidence against it. Just too much. I've got dear friends that, that embrace that. And they're dear friends who are wrong. Once you're saved, you're always saved. And I'm so grateful for that. Because if there's anybody that could have lost their salvation, it would be this guy. Yes, sir. Ask him this. Are you a man? 
He'll probably say yes. Jesus said, no man can pluck him out of my hand. No man. And that includes himself. By the way, it also includes Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. He won't even pluck him out himself. Is that going to solve it for him? Probably not. He's made a decision to feel this way. But I'm telling you, the, 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 the adoption, adoption, the, the term adoption in that culture, when you adopted somebody into your family, you could not disown them. You couldn't. God uses words for a reason. He's saying, not only are you born into the family of God, I've adopted you. I've twice over made you an ir- irretrievable member of my family. Nobody can get you out. Not even me. And that's, that's a hard doctrine to, 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 to believe because, all right, then how do you know if you are or you aren't? You know? Who are the people and places that we identify here? All right, well, everything happens in the jail in Philippi. Let's look at the people that are involved here. All right, you got Paul. You got Silas. You got the prisoners. You got the Philippian jailer. Okay. And I'm kind of going to put all these together just for time's sake moving forward. The question was brought up in our class. Why didn't the prisoners run? Now, this is a supernatural thing that happened. Well, an earthquake isn't supernatural. No, it's not necessarily, but an earthquake that releases your chains and opens doors, that's supernatural. Even if an earthquake knocks a door off its hinge, you cannot account for the chains coming loose without it being supernatural. And you've got people in that, in that jail that if a jailer is willing to kill himself because if a jailer let prisoners get loose, he was then to take the punishment that, you know, the worst one that was there for those, for those prisoners. So if he's willing to kill himself to avoid that, there's some people in that jail facing some pretty bad things. It's not unreasonable to consider at least one of them in there was waiting to be crucified. Okay. If I'm laying there on this jail cell floor and I'm going to be crucified in the morning and the doors swing open and my chains fall off, I'm out of there. But not one of them left. How do we explain that? Well, maybe Paul and Silas got chesty with them and said, y'all ain't going anywhere. Paul and Silas have just been beat within an inch of their life. They're not in any shape to do anything to anybody. So that's not it. The only thing that I can come up with, and, and prisoners being plural, even if it's just two of them, even if it's just two of them, the only thing that I can come up with is these guys got saved. And I'll tell you what leads me to that. Why else, in verse 25, would God make a point to tell us, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them? Well, duh, of course they did. Why mention it if that doesn't have some relevance to the narrative? It leads me to believe they led these guys to Christ, and the Holy Spirit ordered them to stay put. That's the only thing I can, I may be wrong, but 
Yeah, I mean, God, God could just keep them in place. That's true. Yeah. Maybe. Either way, the Holy Spirit had something to do with it. There was something supernatural going on here. All right? Keep the prison of waking out of his sleep. I've always assumed that he lived in or near the prison. Um, but it's just as possible he fell asleep on guard. So we've got the prisoners, we've got Paul and Silas, we've got the Philippian jailer. Anybody else? There's one unnamed person. says he called for a light. Who brings him the light? Maybe his wife, maybe one of his kids, maybe somebody else that worked. We don't know who that was, but there was somebody else there. Don't know a thing about him, but when you read the Bible, look for things. Somebody else was there. Any cause-effect relationships? Yeah. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Notice it says, and thy house. He's not saying if you believe, the rest of your house will be saved too. That's not how it works. Spurgeon fought against that. Jonathan Edwards fought against that. No, that's not how it works. He was saying, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And if your house believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be saved. In fact, the next verse says that. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. Something else that I just, just, just jumps out at me sometimes. He called in, he called for a light, sprang in, came in trembling, fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said. They both answered him, and they both answered him the same. It's important that Christians all have the same gospel. Number nine, in what ways does this passage apply to your personal life? I think the obvious answer is, I know how to be saved. It's not out of the realm of possibility that the Philippian jailer was one of the ones who participated in beating them. This shows remarkable compassion and unconditional love. And you know why I think Paul found himself able to show that kind of love? I heard this, I don't know where this originated from, but it it struck me when I heard it and I've never gotten over it. The martyrs who Paul killed cheered when he walked into heaven. And that's what grace does. If Paul could be forgiven by Stephen and those he killed, how much more should he forgive those who harmed him? What passage, what in this passage might you want to study in further detail? That's between you and the Lord, but you may want to do that. We're just talking about, you know, 25 through 33, just a handful of verses. See how much there is here? See how enjoyable Bible study can be? And so this is just an exercise to kind of help you, help whet your appetite. Um, we'll, Lord willing, we'll get into the next section next week.